Well, I get to talk today, and uh, I'm pretty jazzed about this. There's a, a book that some of you read out a few years ago. It's called Kids' Letters to God. A little girl wrote, Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but please be fair. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Well, today I want to uh, give a talk that I've never given before. Uh, that's uh, not been given in the seven years that Ann and I have been here, and uh, one that I'm fairly passionate about, and one that I hope is a tribute and an honor to my mom. I hope that it's helpful for all of you, and if you're a guest with us today, uh, let me tell you, you picked a really interesting day uh, to be at Evergreen, and uh, I have to believe that God has something helpful and interesting for you as well in it, so uh, let's dive in. I want to tell you a little bit about my mom, one of my heroes. She was bright, Bible scholar, gifted teacher, passionate evangelist, and effective church planter. And she lived most of her life in a church context that told her that she could never have a leadership position and that she could never speak from the platform. Hmm. So as a kid growing up, I had this interesting environment of trying to figure out how that all worked out. I was especially confused when our church helped support female missionaries that went to other places and could come home and give talks about the great things that God did. So I could only infer as a kid that God did use American women in leadership capacities, but he only did that in Africa. He didn't do that at home. Confusing, isn't it? And I also understood it was very clear to our family that my two sisters could never be called to be a pastor or a teacher at our church. I miraculously had that mysterious Y chromosome that was the male marker that let God know that he could call me to do some things he could never call my sisters to do. Confusing, but not the only thing the church confused me to do. And doesn't the church confuse you anyway about stuff now? We understand that. I guess that's how it's supposed to be. Well, today, let's talk about what God thinks about women. First, an evergreen story. Not long after Ann and I came here nearly seven years ago, we talked with a longtime friend, a man who loves us deeply, through whom we had a great, with whom we had a great relationship. And he was thinking about coming to Evergreen because he liked us so much. Over coffee that day, he looked across the table. And while he was looking at both of us generally, at this point, he locked on with eye contact with me and with pleading in his voice, he begged, Jared, if you would only make Anne stop speaking at Evergreen, people like me could come to church there. It was with tears in his eyes. We did not misunderstand his passion, his conviction, or his love for us. And I wanted to respond in an equal sense of kindness and clarity. You can decide how I did. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, I know most of the other churches in our community and I have high regard for most of them. You can go to any of them and trust me, you will not be bothered with a woman on the platform. There are plenty of options for people like you. But evergreen is for people who may not be like you. People who would like to raise their daughters in a church environment that affirms for them that God has placed no limitations on himself about how he would like to use them as they grow up. Thank you. Now, here's the fun story. He went away. He prayerfully studied some of the passages of Scripture that he'd looked at before. He talked with some people who were respected mentors in his life, and he found just enough latitude to be able to become a full, engaged, and delightful part of the evergreen community. Now, I like to tell stories that have a happy ending. 
that one ended well for me. By the way, if you disagree with me today, you don't think that one turned out well. You would prefer the other ones that I'm about to mention. There are many other stories, of course, where people have not been able to find their way. And isn't it true that in the church, there just seem to be a lot of things that we've yet to come to agreement about, and this is certainly one of those. So the point today is not to convince others, but it's to just be really clear about how and why we function at Evergreen. You've noticed from your uh, notes <laughs> that, uh, that they're long. And the good news for you is that the first two services finished on time for you to be here in this one. I also don't have fill in the blanks because there's a lot of information. And for the many of you that will be a part of life groups this week, you'll probably want to take your notes with you to the life group because there's a lot of information. But first of all, I want to tell you three things we don't do. Oh, that was three things. Three things we don't do. And then three things that we do do. And then I want to give uh, a way that we try to understand the Bible in confusing matters. And then I want to talk about three views of women in leadership and ministry, a view that we subscribe to, and then talk about some implications for how we live. So ready, set, here we go. Three things we don't do. First of all, we don't make our conviction our identity. This is the first time in seven years that anyone has actually given a full talk on Sunday morning about this subject, not because we lack conviction, but because it's not how we identify ourselves. We are a church that is trying to figure out how to love God and love people. And that's taking about all of the energy that we have. And we are wanting to be a church that is a great place to raise kids. So we're not on a uh, advocacy bandwagon or a public policy campaign or not trying to convince other churches of anything. Our reputation is very simple, to love kids and to help people find and follow Jesus. That takes most of our energy. Third, or second, we don't argue with others that have another point of view. In fact, we understand that there's a variety of thoughts about this. But what we do do is we live out our convictions boldly, and we let the results speak loudly. The third thing we don't do is we don't make agreement on this subject, a matter of relationship or fellowship, nor, and it's not in your notes, nor do we denigrate people who hold another point of view. And I hope today that you will hear my passion about this matter without my becoming snarky. Because I can become snarky about things I'm passionate about. So I'm going to stay really close to my manuscript because my manuscript is nice. So here we go. There are three things that we do do. Number one, we base our position on biblical convictions, not cultural convention. So I didn't read the Huffington Post and, uh, and slate yesterday and come up with what would be a cool talk for this morning in 2016. That will become obvious to you as we move forward. Number two, we do intentionally espouse gender equity and we practice gender equity. And I mention that because in my experience, there are probably lots of churches that would espouse gender equity, but they don't practice it. You know what that looks like. You go on the website and you find all of the folks that are on staff, and often initially there's a lot of male-looking pictures when it comes to pastors and leaders, and then there might be more female-looking pictures as it talks about various kinds of support roles, administrative and support ministries. So we want to intentionally both espouse and to practice what we believe. And the third thing we do is that we actively invite gifted, called, and skilled men and women to lead here. Now, this is nothing new for us. This is not a change of direction. It's a clarification and an articulation. Since its inception 90 years ago, Foursquare, which is the association of churches that we have been part of for almost all of our history, has um, been clear and consistent with this statement. I quote, anyone called by God and verified through character, spiritual experience, and preparation for service and leadership is qualified for ministry in any role or office, regardless of gender, age, or ethnicity. Hmm. So the third thing I promise to do is to just to take a moment to talk about how we try to understand the Bible in confusing matters. 
Do any confusing matters come to mind for you? Yeah, there's a bunch. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Wow. Confusing, difficult. Church is all across the map on that one. When it comes to the role and the place and the opportunities for women, all across the map. How do we approach the Bible in a way that helps us make sense in a biblical way of our convictions? Well, we do four things. Number one, we start at the beginnings. Where you start will often indicate where you'll end. Let me tell you how this works when it comes to this matter. Once in a while, not often, but once in a while, a guy will want to engage me in an argument about what I believe and about what we practice regarding women in leadership and ministry. And he'll say to me, I want to know how you came up with your idea about that. Now, these conversations are generally not long because I generally don't have much to say because this is often how they go. I'll ask him, sir, tell me where you start in your position on this matter. And he'll often say, I start with the Bible kind of with that tone that makes the implications clear that I apparently would start someplace else. So I immediately agree that we've started at the same place. And then I say to him, what particular verses come to mind that are really helpful for you in your understanding? And he'll say something like, well, it's very clear to me. I believe the Bible and the Bible says in there someplace, I will never let a woman teach or have authority over a man. And I'll say, Oh, that was a good paraphrase of what I think Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. And he'll be a little surprised because I actually knew the reference. <laughs> and then he'll say, and then, oh, and then there's that other one that says women should keep silent in the church. Anything to say they should talk to the hubby when they get home. And I say, oh, that one comes right out of 1 Corinthians 14, about verse 23, doesn't it? And he goes, Now, what am I doing? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to let him know that I've actually read the book myself. Fairly familiar. But let me ask you, if you start with those two verses, where do you think you're going to end up with on your belief in theology of women in leadership and ministry? It's obvious, isn't it? Because it's about where you start. So secondly, we want to be very open and clear about where we start the primary passages from which we view the rest of Scripture. And then third, we interpret other Bible references through the lens of those foundational practices. So we start often in the first place that an issue is mentioned in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and then in the Gospels, and then in the early church. And then secondly, we identify the major, what we believe are theological overarching verses about God's intention. And then through that lens, we're able to interpret some of those more specific and in some cases, local situations. So you go get your eyes fixed. You get lens. You get two lenses on your eyes. We don't do the monocles anymore. We like the buy thing. Here we go. So our spectacles have a lens over here. This is the first places in the Bible a matter is addressed. And then we add to it the second lens of what are the big theological passages that relates to this matter. And when we put those lens of, it's called biblical interpretation, those lens on, we then see the rest of scripture in a way that has been influenced by those lens. It's called systematic theology, a systematic approach to understanding the Bible. And guess what? There are more than one systems of that. And if you start with a different set of glasses, you might very likely end up with some different convictions. Now, I'm mentioning all this today because this talk is to help you, in part, love other people better. And one of the things that's happening for you is that you're discovering that there's some folks in your life that may have another point of view as I begin to describe some of those, that you'll have a better appreciation for the sincerity with which they can come to that point of view, even if you have legitimate difference of opinion about those conclusions. So fourth, regarding equality, we start with Genesis chapters one through three. And then we go to Matthew and Luke chapters one and two. How was it when Jesus was introduced? And then we go to Acts chapter two. Those are the beginnings, Old Testament, New Testament, and the early church. And then we take a look at a couple of overarching theological ideas. The first one of those two is in Galatians chapter three, verse 28. It says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, 
nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. That's where we start. And if you start there, you may end up where I'm going today. But let's take a few steps along the way in the process. I'd like to give you three views about women that are quite common, and many of you will be able to think back about your own life and experience and find yourself there. Some of you will find yourself in one of those in your story today, and others of you will understand how some of your friends or colleagues or family members might find themselves in a different place. And because I can get snarky and sarcastic, I have gone to these definitions from primary sources who are sympathetic to these points of view because you should not trust me in coming up with my own definition for these. You understand that. So I'm trying to be fair here. Number one is a traditional view that believes that not only that women are not to hold leadership positions in church, but also that the reason for this restriction lies in her nature. A woman is more susceptible to deceit and temptation. Okay? And there is a biblical stream. You can put a few verses together from Genesis chapter 3 when the woman Eve was the one that the, the serpent Satan went after. She was deceived and then she drug her husband into this mess. And there's a couple of places that Paul talks about that. And if you put the two of those together, it is possible for people to come up with this point of view that by nature women have been made in a weaker and more susceptible character and nature. And therefore this traditional view comes out of that. Hmm. Almost went to snarky, but I didn't. I just, I'm, Brad, I'm behaving. Here we go. The head of the woman is the man. Now, this view, I quote, believes that Genesis 3.16, that's where it talks about the problem that came into the marriage relationship because of sin and brokenness, teaches that women desire to control their husbands and therefore inherently desire to take over leadership in the church. So, uh, I have to tell you a fun story because uh, the professor popped out a couple of times today and he may visit again, but let me talk as your friend. So I'm a little kid and I'm growing up in this church and I'm watching this stuff happen. And uh, because, of course, in our traditional uh, belief, if a man and a woman are one and if the male is the superior over the subordinate female and they're one, then it would be redundant for two people in that marriage to vote. So only men voted in our church. Very consistent, appropriate. If you, if you believe what I just said, very appropriate, outworking of that. So the church decided to get together and talk about this woman in leadership kind of a thing. And, uh, and the men were up front because that's where the members were. And then the women and us kids were in the back, the non-members. And so I'm watching this little kid, this thing. And one man stands up and he holds his Bible. It was black. This one is navy. That would have never worked. Never, never worked in our church. It was a black Bible. And he stood up with great sincerity. I, I know this, have known this man for life, absolutely sincere. And he stood up and he said, I'm just a simple man. But if the Bible says that, I believe it. And that settles it. And the Bible says a woman should be silent in church. So I believe it. And I think that settles it. And he sat down. Yeah. Now, if you have the background view that he has about the traditionalist view and the headship thing, then I understand how he could get there. I also understand that it's kind of dangerous to pin, hinge your life on one particular verse. Yeah. Well, this is kind of fun. You know, a couple of friends were talking. One of them said, I desperately want to know what God wants from my life. And I know that he's revealed it in scripture, but I'm not sure it's that clear. And I know that the Holy Spirit leads and guides me into all truth, but I'm not sure what he's saying. And then his friend said, oh, this is simple, simple. He said, just open the Bible anywhere the Spirit leads and open a page and point at a verse. And that's what God wants you to do, the Spirit and the Word together. Is that awesome or what? Have you done that? I have. Not always with good results, but I have done that, yeah. But the friend said, but wait, but wait, the trick is this. The Bible needs to confirm itself with another testimony. So what you do is you go a second time and then you put the first place with the second place. And that's exactly what God wants you to do. Awesome. So the friend, luckily he landed in the New Testament. The Old Testament has weird stuff. And he points and he reads, and Judas went out and hung himself. (laughs) 
closes it. Oh God, I don't know how you're going to qualify that one. This is the very words of Jesus. Go and do likewise. <laughs> bad, horrible, horrible, bad, yeah. Yeah. So what about this headship thing? Paul talks about it a lot in two or three letters in the Bible. It's a big deal and it's a real deal. I'm not going to handle specific things, but let me just mention this. On your own homework, go and become a student of the word that is translated head in the Bible. You're going to discover that it's generally translated source. Go back and see how God treats his expression of sourcing life and other things. And think about what's talked about in that passage as you use the word source and do some thinking there and it might lead you towards some interesting ideas. But it will not tell you to go hang yourself. Here we go. Idea number three in view, complementarianism. I had to practice that word. It's very, very long. Holds the view, and I quote, that although men and women are created equal in their personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles in life, at home, and in the church. So some call this equal but different. Complementarians believe that the Bible establishes male authority over women in marriage and in the church. Now, flashback again to my wonderful mom. She put up with some amazing gymnastics in our very conservative church. She taught two or three women's Bible studies every week for the course of several decades, as long as a bunch of evangelistic kids released time Bible classes and good news clubs. I think I mentioned that she planted the church that I grew up in, the church that would no longer, could no longer let her teach at it. That's kind of an awkward thing, yeah. But that's another story. So women were coming home from Jeannie Roth's Bible studies, telling their husbands these wonderful things they were learning about the Bible. And the husbands were starting to feel a little bit out-taught because, frankly, the pastors that our church attracted were not that good. And everybody knew that Jeannie Roth was by far the best Bible scholar and the best informed and the best teacher in the whole bunch, but she couldn't be up there. I feel sorry for the pastors I grew up with. They had to talk to my mom all the time. So they went to the pastor and said, Pastor, we want to hear what Jeannie Roth is telling our wives. Pastor went to the elders and said, we have a problem. They want to hear what their Jeannie Roth is telling their wives, and I kind of want to hear what Jeannie Roth is talking about too. You know, she kind of has this uh, expertise and specialty on end times prophecy, and she's got these charts and graphs and all this stuff. It sounds interesting to me. I've never figured out Revelation. and We got to have Jeannie Roth come, and how are we going to do this? And the pastor was a wise man. He said, well, I think we should vote on this. Now, voting, of course, was for the members who were all male, and this is going to be a tough deal on whether or not we're going to vote. And so the pastor got all the men together, and they're having a membership meeting, and he said, I just want you to know that under my watch, no woman will ever teach from this platform. Never, ever. I want you to know we're solid on that. No woman is going to teach in this church. But you know, on Sunday nights, we often have testimonies. And I've been told that Jeannie Roth has about eight weeks of Sunday night testimony in her. And I'm thinking that maybe we could vote, instead of having our testimony time and a message, that we'll just have Jeannie Roth testify for eight consecutive Sunday nights about what God has taught her and shown her about some stuff about end times. Now, my mom was smart and shrewd. She responded to this and said, I would be delighted to testify for eight weeks. Only if the vote is 100% for me to do that. Because there was no way she was going to set her up to some snarky guy out there messing around with the thing. 100% had never been a unanimous vote in the history of the church voted for Jeannie Roth to testify for eight consecutive Sunday nights. I actually got to hear my, my mom teach in the context of males as a kid growing up that one time. It'll take you towards some interesting places. All these practices will. But it's important, I think, to think through some of the implications. Now, this isn't in your notes, but just briefly, but very importantly, because this will help you love others and understand where some people get where they've gone. 
all three of these views about women in leadership and ministry hold in common a biblical belief called biblical, a belief called biblical patriarchy. Now, patriarchy is a set of beliefs concerning gender relations in marriage, in family, in the home, and for some, in civic life. I want to mention just five tenets of what's called biblical patriarchy because you'll see some of your friends in this and it will help you understand how they're living life out sincerely. First of all, they would say God reveals himself as masculine, not feminine. It's hard to deal in biblical patriarchy with verses where God says that he's nursing his nation, Israel, and other places, but that's a very important starting point. God's a man. Number two, God ordained gender, distinct gender roles as part of created order. And that order is here and here. Number three, a husband is the head of the household, a family leader, the provider, and the protector. Number four, male leadership in the home carries over to the church and into civic affairs. And number five, the woman was created as a helper for her husband and as the bearer of his children and as a keeper of the home. Now, there are other tenets as well, but that's enough to give you a flavor. I do want to mention three common results that can happen from that kind of context. They're not necessarily intended, but they can be an outworking of that culture, and you've seen it. Number one, women should not vote. Number two, higher education is not important for a good Christian woman. And number three, unmarried adult women are subject to their father's authority until they marry or until he dies. Hmm. Now, for some of you, that sounds like maybe an ancient and archaic way of thinking. Let me suggest to you that it is very alive and well and thriving and flourishing. I have a confession to make, which gets us to the story. Did you know that I play hooky from church once in a while? It's true. I do. And did you know that when I play hooky, sometimes I go on field trips, which are very, very fun. I get to visit other churches. And if I do it right, I can go to five other worship services in our community on a weekend. I start on Saturday night and hit three on Sunday morning and go to one on Sunday night. And that's one of the reasons that we're so well informed about other wonderful churches in our community. So when people come and they want to chat about that and Evergreen might not quite fit for me, I think I'm being called to go and they don't know where they're being called, we can actually be an excellent resource for them about other churches. And we have such high regard for them. We really do. But let me tell you something. We don't all agree about this matter. So my experience was I was there and it was a wonderful worship service. I noticed the band were all men and the singers were all men. And that's all fine. I was all set up. I figured it was going to be an all men thing on the platform. I understood that context. Wonderful church, people getting saved there. Huh. So the awkward moment happened during announcement time because there was an upcoming women's retreat. And one of the women in the church had a very wonderful experience at the women's retreat the year before. So the pastor asked the husband of the woman who had the good experience to come to the platform so that he could tell what a wonderful experience his wife had so that other women would be motivated to come to the retreat. Now, this is already awkward to me, already awkward, little inefficient and an otherwise very tight and scripted deal. But what really got awkward was he didn't know any of the logistics about the retreat. So he had to interview his wife, who was three feet down and on the front row, about what he was supposed to tell about the retreat so that he could do the telling about the retreat. Now, I know I kind of made it a caricature and I had a little bit of fun with it, but folks, it's exactly what happened. And it happened in 2016 because of a framework of thinking about what God calls men and women to do in ways that can have some kind of, in that case for me, a humorous result. Well, for some of us, you'll be delighted to know that there's a fourth view. And uh, those, some of you include me. And it's, uh, let me, uh, and it's called egalitarianism. And let me again read a direct quote. Egalitarians teach that roles in the church and home are to be gift-based. Gift Whoa rather than gender-based. So egalitarians believe that leadership is not determined by gender, but by gifting and calling of the Holy Spirit, and that God calls believers to submit to one another. In this viewpoint, there's no gender-based restrictions on ministry in the church. 
Now, I'm going to restrain myself. I'm going to stop there. Let me just compare these two major then points of view. On one hand, there's egalitarians who believe that since we are all one in Christ, there's no gender distinctions when it comes to leadership roles in church and the home. And the opposing view that believes that there are gender distinctions when it comes to roles in church and the home. And before I move on to what we believe the Bible says that can help us, I want to mention that there's actually a fifth view, which is a hybrid of those two. The hybrid being for people to say, I'm an egalitarian when it comes to church. So men and women can be called by God to do anything in church, but I am a complementarian when it comes to home. So that there is the man who's over the woman in the husband-wife relationship And at church, there is an egalitarian point of view. I mention that because that's fairly common. Personally, I find that very difficult to come up with and even more difficult to practice. But I want to recognize that some people find that they're in that place. Now, I'm not going to talk about a historical perspective other than just to say this. Where we have come today in the church of Jesus 2,000 years after his death and crucifixion, has been a difficult and a halting story that has been a mixed bag of effort. And it was a parallel story to slavery for the first 1,800 years of the life of the church. Martin Luther gave an extreme speech and writing about how godly slavery is and how it's in the order of creation and how it's God designed civic life to work. Hmm. So it wasn't only the Bible that was consulted. It was Martin Luther and many other reformers, including John Calvin, who had a similar point of view. In the natural creative way of things, God designed for there to be masters and for there to be slaves. So that was very much a part of the ferment of the history of our country, of course. And eventually, Christian abolitionists were able to bring forward scripture that said, I understand that the Bible makes statements in culture that appear to be accepting of and managing of But the Bible certainly didn't say that God created some to be masters and slaves. And the story of men and women has been something of a parallel story in that as well. So how do we get to the place of our current beliefs? Well, let's take a look at what the Bible says. Now, I'm going to disappoint all of you. I'm going to talk about what the Bible says, but I'm not going to deal with some of the delicious and contagious, what's that word? Contentious, thank you very much. I always look to the multicultural person here on the front row from Australia. I'm not going to look at some of those little uh, isolated passages, but I want to give you the the lens of what we're looking for uh, in the whole. So let's take a look at what the Bible says. First of all, we believe that the Bible says that we were created, that there was created equality. That God created male and female equal in all respects. That in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 7, he makes no distinction between man and woman insofar as they were equally made in his image, and both are given the responsibility to rule over his creation. Yeah. Now, I have to stop here for just a moment, because everyone from every position would say, I start with the Bible, and most people would say, I start in Genesis, and here's the big tricky deal. Your belief about the Trinity will shape your belief about this matter. There are some who believe that the Trinity is a hierarchy, that there is the Father, under which is the Son, and under whom is the Holy Spirit. Very clear structure of the Trinity. And together they are one, and together they are God. But the Father sends Jesus, and Jesus sends the Spirit, and that reflects a hierarchy. Now, if you have a hierarchy in the Trinity and you say that God created man, mankind, the word Adam for humans in his own image, male and female, he made them, then one could infer that God had a hierarchy and the first one made was the one that was over the other one. You're following my logic? Yeah. Now, there are many of us that say, we don't think that the Bible suggests that the Trinity is a hierarchy. We think that it is a beautiful picture of relationship and oneness and mutuality so that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are moving together in this harmonious, mutual, oneness relationship. So that when God says, I'm creating mankind in my likeness and image, he is creating them, the first unit, male and female, 
in his image of oneness and mutuality. You can see that where you start will determine potentially very different ends in where you go. So that's where we start. We do think, letter B, that there's a fallen disorder and hierarchy that comes out of the mess of sin that was introduced in Genesis chapter 3. That when sin was introduced into God's created order, disorder corrupted relationships, including the introduction of a non-intended hierarchy in the relationship between men and women. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, that talks about the curse of sin that came on women, it appears that because of sin, women would have then a broken disposition of subservience before man, and the man would have a broken disposition of supremacy over the woman. It's a part of the fall that we're describing. Letter C. We believe the Bible teaches a restored equality through redemption in Christ. Our big passage in Galatians 3.28 says that then in Christ, that that in Christ, the false baseness of male and female hierarchy has been abolished and there's no distinction in God's kingdom between male and female. And the male and female equality has been restored. Dignity is given back to women and that the serv- and servant attitudes are called for by and among all of us as men and women. Be submitted to one another, Paul writes. Letter D, God's design was for male-female equality. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 shows that the man and the woman share the same human nature. They're made in God's image. They're both given God's commission to rule the earth. And we believe that not only there is there the equality of being, but also the equality in function. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, there's the word helper, which is very important. And I wish I could talk for an hour about it. I can't and I won't, but it's a, it's a word for you to study. It, in some translations, it says that the woman was made to be a helpmeet or being a helper. The, the, the The original word there in Hebrew is ezer, E-Z-E-R. Do a study on that word. You'll notice that the few times that the word ezer is used in the Old Testament, it is almost always used not of one human toward another, but almost always used of God toward us. The psalmist says, God is my helper and my strength. Let me ask the question. Who is subordinate in in that in that statement. Did God all of a sudden support himself to us so that he could help us? No. Helper means to come and to come complement to fulfill in that which was missing. So it'll be an interesting study for you to move forward. Number three in Genesis 2, 23 and 24 and following, they are one flesh, indicating full equality of persons. And then our great verses in Galatians 3, 28. If it's God's purpose through redemption to abolish the sin-generated distinctions that separate people with different ethnicities and people of different socioeconomic strata and that separate men and women into classes or a hierarchy, then this must be understood as a return to what God had originally created in creation, an intent which was distorted by the fall and now has the potential to be restored back real in Christ in oneness. Well, I could go on, but I won't. Let's, let's jump to E and biblical examples of female equality and with males in Scripture. We believe that in reading the Bible, despite, despite God speaking into cultures that are manifestations of the effects of sin and brokenness, and God reaching people in those cultures to move them toward his restoration and reconciliation, that God still, even in the Old Testament, gave many glimpses of what his original intention was. And so, though Israel was largely patriarchal, along with most, if not all, of the nations around it, other sin-infected cultures too at the time, God saw fit to have within Israel some remarkable examples of female leadership. You're familiar with Miriam and Hilda and Deborah who were prophets, and Deborah who was also a judge in Israel. Other examples of women in Israel had prominent roles of spiritual formation and leadership and development were Ezra and Ruth and Naomi. 
Second, we go to the beginnings of the New Testament and we see how Jesus participated with women in some remarkable ways. Each of those ways being countercultural, each of them setting Jesus and others up to ridicule because they weren't doing it the right way, but nevertheless displaying Jesus' true view toward women in that patriarchal culture and religion. Luke 8 tells us that women provided financially for Jesus, and many were a part of the group that traveled with him. Luke 10, Jesus commends Mary for sitting at his feet as a disciple of a rabbi, always a male, would be at sitting at his feet rather than helping her sister in the kitchen. There was a commendation of many women that Jesus pointed out as examples of having stellar faith and love. The Samaritan woman was the first evangelist of Jesus in the entire world. And it was women that God gave revelation to about the resurrected Christ who first reported of that to others. And how about the other beginning we go to? The beginning of the Old Testament, the beginning of the Gospels, and the beginning of the early church. We find in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, that women and, and men alike were recipients of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost because God needs everyone to be filled with his Spirit to do his work on earth. It's why he gave us the baptism of the Spirit to all. In 1 Corinthians 12, men and women are equally gifted with various gifts as the Spirit gives as he wishes. And in 1 Corinthians 11, passage often to use to de describe why women shouldn't speak in church, it's in the context of them being commended for prophesying in the church. Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team, almost always named with Priscilla, the wife first in Scripture, brought aside a teacher of the Bible named Apollos to give him further instructions and clarification about the truth. And finally, in Romans chapter 16, Paul writes this long list of commendations and greetings to people in the church. And in that long list, he commends more women than he does men. And specifically, there are two women along with a third named Phoebe who are uh, served as deacons and one unnamed woman and another woman uh, whose name is uh, Janice, who were, quote, outstanding among the apostles. So it seems to us, when we put on the lens of what does the Bible say in the beginnings, and what does the Bible say in the big theological statements about the rest restorative and redemptive work of Christ, and the baptism with the Spirit on the launching of the church, that we can look at some of these difficult other passages as we all struggle with through a lens that can help us make sense of what the intention and the truth and the application for us might be without coming to a, to a position that says there is a hierarchy between men and women where the list of things that women can do in the church is this long and the additional list in addition to those things of what men can do is this long and the list of things that women can do is have babies and nurse them are the only additions to that. In fact, I have struggled with the, um, the word complementarian because I tend to think that complementary means this. And what I've discovered that it tends to mean that there's two lists. One is shorter for women, one is longer for men. And I don't think that a clear looking at Scripture requires at all we come to that point of view. Well, I'm starting to go off text, which is really a bad thing to do because you're about done and so am I. So back to the notes. This is what we believe. We believe that God's purposes for people are revealed in the Bible. You'd better start here. At creation, both male and female were endowed with dominion and, and God called them to exercise their God-given responsibility and privilege of leadership. And then chapter three, human disobedience caused the, that beauty to be lost. Men and women are designed to be equal partners in ministry. At Jesus' birth, there's Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon, and each one, enabled by God's Spirit, ministered in ways that acknowledged their gender, yet neither promoted nor penalized them for it. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon believers in power and launched the church. And at that time, God's plan of redemption and restoration 
was announced from the pages of Joel, and I quote, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. This passage is for us one of the foundational biblical grounds for our position, and it gives us the path not just of where we are, but the path of restoration that God has us on. I resonate with a statement written by John Ortberg. Some of you are familiar with his name. He's a highly respected evangelical pastor. He pastors in Menlo Park, California. I quote, When you look at the preponderance of evidence in the Bible, first, God's intent at creation, loss of oneness at the fall, leadership roles of women in the Old Testament, the attitude and practices of Jesus, the roles of women in the church, then it seems to me, he says, that an egalitarian community best captures God's intent for humans. Hmm. Whether or not you're there or agree, this is our story. When Foursquare was started uh, 90 years ago, uh, it was started by a woman in 1923. And in the early years, 60% of the licensed ministers were female, and 40% of senior pastors were women. In 1930, when Evergreen was two years old, it affiliated with Foursquare. And the first two senior pastors were appointed were Edith Campbell and Ina Fanson, co-lead pastors. In 1947, Mary Young and Ruth Baker were appointed as co-senior pastors. Some of you have been around over the decades, and you know that several married couples have served as co-pastors, the Phillips and the Stantons and others. And Anne and I just have the privilege of building on that tradition and that platform today. We think that both of us are called. Some people think we're reasonably well-trained and gifted and experienced, and we both bring our contributions, which are certainly distinct, but we hope to be of good service to all. At Evergreen, we ask the question, who is God called and gifted, who has become trained and equipped, and who seems to be willing and available to serve in a place of leadership that we need? So we have Kim who pastors kids, and Lydia pastors young adults, and Marley leads us in worship, and Elizabeth leads and teaches, and Rick and Brad pastor and teach, and they serve along with Anne and me. This is not something we thought of yesterday. This is who we are. So let me ask the question, so what can we do? I hope these are thoughtful ideas for you that you'll take home and think over and pray over. Men encourage women to boldly serve and joyously and graciously receive God's gifts through them. Women lead and champion your female friends' opportunities to serve. Dads, tell your kids that God made them with equal possibilities. Moms, encourage your daughters to expect that God can call them to do anything he wants them to do. Parents, raise your kids in a community of faith that supports rather than suppresses or distorts their God-gifted potential. Young men and women, hey, don't buy into the gender subordination deal. Live in the freedom of mutual submission and love and respect. And for all of us, stand against injustice of every kind, including improper subjection of women in work, society, church, and home. Advocate for justice for generations that follow us, engage in a church that encourages and celebrates God's work in and through everyone, men and women, boys and girls, old and young. Last story. As I watched my mom navigate the uh, treacherous life in the waters of the traditionalist and patriarchal church, as a kid, I was often confused. And once in a while, I watched how tricky she was. Mom gave in to an awful lot of goofiness. 
goofy requirements that all had a chapter and verse assigned to them. I understand. She, for example, wore a doily kind of a bonnet thing on her head when she was in church because the Bible said so. Kind of similar to the Muslim women in our community in a Renko station that wear a head covering in a similar, similar symbol of, uh, of humility and subordination. My mom didn't receive communion with men. Of course, she and the other women were down the hall in the fellowship hall. Bible's very clear about that, you know. And she was prohibited from sharing her remarkable works, ver, uh, 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 gifts. Lots of scripture to support that. Did I say that my mom was also fairly smart? And did I say that she was a little bit devious? I saw her draw the line, too. In opposition to other traditions that came straight out of the Bible, she cut her hair. Mm, she did. Can you believe that? And she also was caught braiding another woman's hair one time. And you know the Bible is clear that women should not braid their hair. And later in life, the rebel Jeannie Roth wore a wedding band, even though the Bible very clearly says not to wear jewelry. You understand? My mom was a gentle rebel. Yeah. She decided she would draw the line at some grossly misused Bible passages, and she was tolerated because for marriage she had converted into our church and was given latitude that my sisters who were born in the church were not given, if you can believe that one. I think my mom was an amazing, wonderful, contributing rebel. And today on Mother's Day, I say, you rock, Jeannie Roth. Yeah. <laughs> so, listen, I don't know what you'll do. You'll be glad I won't talk about this for another seven years. When I come in and talk, it'll be either with a cane or a walker. It won't be as long because I won't have the energy and they'll have to record the first service and play it by some kind of recording mechanism for the others. But here's the deal. I do recommend this. Regardless of where you stand today, I want you to do something. Don't be silent about your convictions. Speak up, act up, be bold, pave the way for others. As the prophet Micah says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so to Evergreen, daughters and sons and grandkids and nieces and nephews and young friends, we say, in Jesus, you can be anything God gifts and calls you to do. You can lead, you can preach, you can teach, you can pastor, you can plant churches. God made you, he gifts you. We're here to sponsor you. God thinks we need everyone filled and gifted by his spirit in this great work that he's called us to, in his great commission. And God is with you and we stand behind you. May it be in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>